Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome back, everybody, to a special holiday edition of the Hidden History Happy Hour. My pal Alex Dean is out on festive assignment of some sort, but not to worry, because we have the world's most famous urban warfare expert, my friend, my new friend on X Spaces, John Spencer. John, how are you, my friend? I'm great, brother. Thanks for having me. Excited. Thanks for coming. I have to say, John, that you are my second favorite John Spencer. I'm sorry to say. Uh, I really enjoy that. That I mean, the the series was amazing, right? The, the famous actor John Spencer. If you the go West Wing, the, yeah, yeah, West yeah, Wing. yeah. So one, he unfortunately John Spencer, the actor, will be my favorite. But also, you cheated on me with another law of armed conflict lawyer, so that's an issue. <laughs> Have to work out at some point. But today is not about that. Today is about urban warfare, and it's especially about the power and the importance of storytelling in war and two soldiers. So everybody, John Spencer is an award-winning scholar, professor, author, combat veteran, national security and military analyst, and internationally recognized expert and advisor on urban warfare, military strategy, tactics, and other related uh, topics. John served as an advisor to the top four-star general and other senior leaders in the US Army as part of a strategic research groups from the Pentagon to where he teaches now the United States Military Academy, John is currently the chair of urban warfare studies at the Modern War Institute at West Point and co-director of the Urban Warfare Project and importantly, the Urban Warfare, Warfare Project podcast, which will be in the show notes. I urge you to check it out. It starts with some cool helicopter noises. I don't know. I still like our oldie timey theme song, but uh, but it's a great podcast. And John is now world famous. Anyone who has a television uh, or is in the uh descended into the bowels of X spaces like John and I have, uh, uh, knows who John is. Uh, John, let me tell our, our new viewers and listeners who came over, followed us over from X spaces who might not have seen the show before, what we're doing here. So in this show, The Hidden History Happy Hour, we tell obscure stories from history based on these two books, Lessons from History by my co-author Alex Dean, co-host Alex Dean, and the cleverly titled you can't imagine, John, how much money they spent coming up with this. More Lessons from History by Alex Dean. And so we talk about it. We drink if we're drinkers. We drink what our characters might have been drinking. And we discuss the relevance to current events. So I'm going to tell one of Alex's stories in a minute. John doesn't know what this story is, but it directly relates to urban warfare. But first, John, tell us what you're up to. Where can people find you? What are your books? Tell us about you. And by so, the way, cheers, everybody. Cheers, brother. Uh... So I'm continuing my research. As you said, I work for a research center. So I'm primarily a research professor, as I mean, I conduct research and then create products which other people can use to teach or inform their own education. Self-education is really big. So I, I travel the world to combat zones now in my retirement, like you, you get into trouble sometimes, but doing research on modern wars, specifically the urban aspect of that. Uh, my book came out last year, one of my books, uh, Understanding Urban Warfare. I tried to you know, create that clever title as well. Uh, what is it about? Uh, it's about you understanding 
you, the reader, urban warfare. And when Ukraine-Russia war kicked off in February 2022, I had a unique situation uh, which thrust me into kind of a media light, which I hadn't done before. But luckily, I've done you know over a decade of research, so hopefully, I know what I'm talking about a little bit. Uh, and then I you know started doing this analyst thing, which is almost on top of what I do. I, I do research. I create yeah. products for other people to learn from. <clears throat> Yeah, well, it's great, and you've you've helped educate me and tens of thousands of other people about urban warfare uh, on X, formerly known as Twitter Spaces, and elsewhere. And guys, this is how famous John is. Okay, there's actually a thing. If you go into an X space and John is somewhere in the audience, and they want John to come up and talk, they simply say "urban warfare" three times, and much like the genie, John pops up, and. Yeah. Uh, I'm aspiring to that for the law of war. That's what I'm hoping for myself. Unfortunately, that went in the wrong direction at first where they said, all we have to do is rub the genie. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's rub the bottle. Uh, yeah, and- people at home, don't type rub the genie into your browser. You don't want to search for that. It's not going to end well for you. Hey, for those of us, for those of you who are just uh, joining us from other other spaces and other places, uh, please uh, go subscribe to our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. Please rate us a, a good rating. If you don't like the show, don't rate us at all. Um, and, and follow us and tell your friends. So, John, I'm going to tell a story from more lessons from history, and then we'll talk about the urban warfare implications of it. And uh, it's, I want to see how long it takes for you to understand what the story is, probably right away when I say the names of the countries. But the story is called, and I'm using for the first time the Hidden History Happy Hour Whiteboard. For those who can see, release the bees. This is our story for today. Release the bees. And I'm going to do it as Alex Dean, my co-host, what old school reading right from the book. It is short. Don't worry. <clears throat> and you will probably correct me on the pronunciations of these, these two uh, warring parties here. Okay. The Romans were fond of fighting wars against uh, Mithridates of Pontius. Did I say that right? Mithridates of Pontius. That's how I'm saying it. Apologies to... Uh, <laughs> The Pontius are still around. And spoiler alert, they got their man and his empire in the end. But Mithridates and his allies certainly made Rome work for the win. In the longest and the last of the Mithridatic Wars, 73 to 63 BC, the Romans laid siege to, sorry, I'm going to butcher this one too, probably Themyscira. That sounds right to me, Themyscira. Themyscira was a tough nut to crack. And after other measures had failed, the Romans, seemingly unable to go over walls of the city, decided to go under them. Led by Lucullus, uh, beloved by Rome as much for his unbelievable amount of booty with which he returned from his campaigns, as for the victories he notched up for them, the Roman army dug a huge and deep network of tunnels to both undermine the great walls of the city and potentially allow them to penetrate it from within without having to scale the walls. You know the story, John? I, I know of many stories like it. Uh, that one specifically isn't ringing a bell, yeah. Oh, great. Excellent. This is going to be good. Realizing Lucas's plan, the plucky Themyscrians dug tunnels of their own, successfully designed and implemented to interact with those of the Romans. And then they unleashed all manner of wild animals from the city, forcing them down the tunnels toward Lucas's men. Not just angry dogs and such either. These creatures were so varied as to include, at one end of the size spectrum, swarms of bees, 
And at the other end of the spectrum, enormous bears. Said animals recorded in the annals of history duly attacked the Romans in the tunnels. Now, it's true that in the end, the Miscurans lost and lost so hard that their city was ground into dust so thoroughly that debate continues to this day about where it was or was not precisely located. But that is hardly the point. First, we mark the ingenuity of the defenders in stopping at nothing in what they would throw at the Romans. Unleash the bees! Ha ha! Fight them, Romans! Secondly, we have to imagine the feeling of the attackers. You're on your umpteenth campaign against the Pontic mob. You've fought battles. You've dug the tunnels. You've been ordered to dig. It's hot. You're tired. You've got about 100 bee stings on you in an age with no EpiPens and a relatively limited understanding of anaphylaxis. And wait, what's this? Oh, yes, of course. It is an angry bear coming at me down the tunnel. But they still won. Now, it's too well-known a lesson to dwell on, really. But given that they overcame this too, we shall note that in their prime, those Roman legions really did know what they were about. As somebody who has been attacked in the face by African killer bees, I relate to that story. Wow. Where was where did this occur? In Texas or somewhere? No, Panama, my first duty station. Oh, no. Yeah, in the jungles of Panama, on land navigation. Uh, it yeah. was no, I um, when I was in the agency, we got uh, just enough paramilitary training to know that if we ever needed it, we could call the real experts. That was the entire point of the 12 weeks. We did a little bit of land navigation, John. And I will tell our, our I don't think I've told this story before on our podcast, but uh, they decided in their infinite wisdom to I was 24 or something. They decided in their infinite wisdom to make me the notional uh, platoon commander for our field exercise. And our field exercise basically consisted of I think it was 80 hours of being chased around in the freezing cold somewhere in Virginia by a bunch of uh, National Guardsmen. And we had to do land navigation. And every night you had to hit a certain point. Uh, so you couldn't just hide. You had to march around all the time. And I knew I was terrible at this. I would, it would have been a complete disaster, but I had a guy in my platoon who had just retired as an army ranger. So, and he had all the gear, you know, all he snuck in his good compass as opposed to the world war II surplus crap they gave us. So I appointed him my, uh, XO. And I said to him, and as we're still close friends to this day, I said, all you need to do is walk three feet behind me, look at the map and whisper in my ear the maneuver commands. And we did, and we hit all our objectives and we survived until when we were supposed to get caught and interrogated. And we got done with the three days of interrogation training. And uh, my instructor came up to me in the bar afterwards on the base and he said, Cunningham, we know what you did. And of course, I had already had enough training at this point to not say anything because I didn't know what they knew or didn't know, right? And he says, we know that you picked Lex as your lieutenant because you weren't able to do the land navigation. And it's pregnant pause. And he says, and we really respect the ingenuity and the knowledge of your own failings that, that you did. And that showed leadership. Another pregnant pause. He says, but if you were an undercover operator overseas, it is often highly valuable to appear to be lost. It's not so valuable to actually be lost. So this is why I became an analyst. That's nice. my that's my land nav story. So John, I don't know if you're ready to talk about this, but I know that you've recently made a very informative trip to the Ukraine. And I know you probably want to hold your key findings for your publications, but can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So that was, I just got back, I think it's going on two and a half, if not three weeks ago, from my fourth research trip. So I've made 
four trips uh, into Ukraine since the full-scale invasion on February 24th, 2022. I was there actually shortly after the Russians were defeated, and I can I can qualify that with the definition, defeated uh, on April of 2022 and pulled out of the major capital area in Kiev and all the other cities in East in Western Ukraine. Yeah. So I was on the ground in, in uh, May, late May of 2022. But my last trip, um, you know, I'm an urban warfare guy. I'm a one-trick pony. So even my research is focused on significant urban battles, which is really interesting. Right now, my focus in the trip that I just took is on the Battle of Mariupol, which has a very, you know, as you, we were going to talk about storytelling, a very unique story. Yeah. That- can be traced back to like Thermopylae and Alamo and all these other ones, that, you know, with different endings and different meanings. But where a stat, a story of a war can or a battle can become tied to national identity. Remember the Alamo. Remember um, Mariupol. So right now, my last trip that I just took was interviewing veterans of that battle and some stories that are so crazy that they're almost unbelievable. Um, like the helicopter resupplies that were sent into Mariupol, <laughs> which is crazy. It's almost so crazy. It's like the Band of Brothers scene because people like to relate to movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the captain, you know, runs through the Russians or you know through the Germans to get to where he's going to communicate with the other, and then runs back. Well, the the Ukrainians did a helicopter resupply was which was that crazy, and I got to talk to like the a helicopter pilot. So that was the research and it become a, a report, a story in and of itself on top of the report on the Battle of Mariupol. And this will be turned into a book, a miniseries. What are you, what are you doing with it? Yeah. So, uh, so my next book, I write case studies, right? Which is yeah. like you're like, you just read um, people have, have ideals of what happened during certain battles. Like for me in my world is Stalingrad, Fallujah, you know, all these terms that people use to kind of do a shortcut on, on, on it analysts uh, or analysis so first and foremost most uh, like the battle of key the battle of mariupol will be a case study but i have collected so many stories on both that you could turn it into a book but you know you only have so much time in the day i am paid for certain things so initially right. there'll be case studies published at the modern war institute the case studies themselves and we're up to like eight or nine and right now in, in work will be a, a an anthology of case studies uh, of battles which people use all the time and don't really know what they're talking about. So what? who was the most interesting slash uh, heroic character that you met in your most recent trip? So the, the helicopter pilot, uh, it was just- yeah, a, talk, talk about that, the helicopter. So if people don't know, and, and during this battle of Mariupol, which was an 80-day battle, were about 3,000 um, defenders of the city who were there when the Russians attacked, held the city. Um, they fell back. They, they actually already planned to a, a steel factory, which had some bunkers underneath it. And they held this for 80 plus days. But there was a point where they were out of ammo, getting ready to collapse. And the head of the Ukrainian uh, Directorate of Intelligence organized a helicopter resupply, which is pretty insane in general. I mean, there were 20,000 Russians surrounding the city. and had There's act- no air superiority either, right? Yeah, no, like complete uh, Russians had complete control of the area, had complete air defense of the area. And some somehow they still said, I think we can do it. And they brought together some pilots, which I thought would be like these special forces, 160th SOAR for the U.S. military pilots to do this amazing helicopter thing. And that's 
So I got to interview one of the helicopter pilots who did this resupply. Oh my goodness. And he wasn't one of those. He was a guy who had flown as a civilian um, and had done some time in the military back during the U Yugoslav war, like so long ago, had not flown under Nas, nothing. And then he, when the full scale invasion, he, he went, he, he volunteered to return to service and was help flying helicopters. So he wasn't told the plan because, you know, that's what you do. Move operational to security, yeah. Operational security, move to a point and gets told like, he gets to where he's going and he's told to fly to this location, gets off to some intelligence people says, Hey, you're flying into Mariupol. He's like, okay, let's do it. Uh, they, they load his helicopter up with hundreds of pounds of medical supplies and ammo. And that's it. Uh, and, it, and then they said, you'll, you'll be prepared to fly to Mariupol. Here'll be the route. And they started briefing him on the route. And then at one point they come and say, here's a, another 120 kilos, like over 200 pounds of ammo and medical equipment you want to take but as a helicopter pilot like well that's not possible it's so they took off the guns of the oh my goodness they unhooked the guns of this helicopter so an mi-8 so just an old soviet like not no fancy apache or anything and, and loaded it down they fly napa the earth so th that's pretty crazy the fact that he hadn't had training yeah, so this is for people that don't know. That's when you fly, as I understand it, barely off the ground, and you're following the contours of the ground. That's right, trying to stay below radar, in which somebody yeah. would pick up a helicopter. Uh, so they fly uh, basically an hour and a half with 40, 40 minutes of us in, in darkness, and then they get to a line. So he's flying under night, vision goggles, and they hit the Azov Sea. And he's flying so low that his, he's hitting the – some of the skids are hitting the water. That's oh. how low they're flying deathly afraid of what you're know, the russian control and they're come up over to sea and they have they know there's power lines so they have to pop up over these power lines come down violently and land in this factory that these defenders the whole story is just insane uh and then they fly out so so they actually download all the ammo which are like stingers uh javelins and, and critical ammo and they low load critically wounded well, Ukraine does seven of these flights and they never use the same pilot. So each time they use pilots who had no idea where they were going, had no training in, in the flight path and, and were just brief for operational security reasons. When they got there, you're going to fly this mission uh, with the Russians knowing that it happened once. Like, yeah, yeah. But they did it seven times, lost three helicopters. But it's just this epic story that will go down in history. And I got almost like an exclusive because some of these stories have been told, but, you know, for different audiences. Yeah. It, it was insane. Wow, it's amazing. So there were seven different one-time pilots that did this. Se well, seven cities of 16 helicopters. So, yeah, 16 different pilots. There's one flight oh, engineer who, who did it twice, and he got shot down and was, uh, was killed. Uh, wow. On the second one, obviously. Uh, and so, but the rest got in and out without being captured or killed. That's right. They dropped all payloads. They lost everybody's payload got dropped. Um, they lost a total of three helicopters of the 16 helicopters, the seven sorties of two helicopters, which is really interesting. He said that, you know, as a military guy, like we were told this, this isn't one mission with two helicopters. It's two helicopters with two missions. So if the other one goes down, you keep driving on. It has nothing yeah. to do with your mission. And it yeah. was just a one one guy on the other end 
saying you're basically radioing yeah it looks good <laughs> come on in just everything about it as a military guy you know was just amazing and the guy told it with such clarity i can't wait to release that story do you feel like if the pilots that they approached were professional military pilots they would have thought it was so crazy they wouldn't have wanted to do it or is it just like why didn't they use military pilots i guess is a question I mean, technically, they were military. I just think the Ukrainian oh, okay. military had, had gone through such big reforms that they didn't have that level of special forces trained. Yeah. If you understand who our, who our special operator and helicopter pilots are, I mean, that's decades of experience and training and, and uh, tryouts for the unit, all this stuff. So I don't think they had them. Yeah, understood. Yeah. All right. Well, look, uh, we could hear these stories all day, and hopefully you'll come back. But I did want to just talk to you about as – both as someone who served in combat and as a historian, what do you think the impact of both case studies, the kind of stuff you do, but also uh, just novels and movies and popular entertainment about warfare, what, what is the value of that to the warfighter? I mean, I think it's immense. So one, I'm not a historian, actually. The partner who, I'm kind of like you, I partner with smart people. The guy who I write my case studies with is an actual historian. I get yelled at for butchering history all the time. I'm more of a, I'm a researcher, but I'm also such a advocate of storytelling because I understand as a young soldier, when I joined the military, like you join a military, it doesn't matter which one with preconceptions that were formed through books, through movies, uh, through compelling stories about war. It shapes society's views, of what war should or shouldn't be, what the veteran experience is. Uh, it shapes so much of human civilizations that people don't acknowledge it in whether it's oral history or, or you know in the movies i'm actually headed to a play in new york city uh, which i know brian you're going to see it which is another medium to tell a story so my case studies oh let me just interrupt you john so for, john's being too modest on two fronts one i think he actually is at least a excellent amateur historian if not a professional one and two what he left out about this play in new york called war words is one of the characters is based on him. And I'm going to go see this next week. But talk about the play for a second, and then let's come back to the point. Sure. sure. So the play is another, basically, uh, my friend Michelle Brooks wrote a play about war stories, the stories of modern veterans, because she said, I didn't know anything about the wars. And then she started doing interviews. And I just happened to be um, through close connection with her husband, Max Brooks, who's a famous storyteller, right? Yeah, yeah. Never read War War Z. The book, uh, you should read it. Uh, it's amazing. And and what's crazy as a historian, you'll appreciate that. Max Brooks, her husband, is a is actually a military history buff. Everything in World War Z about zombies actually happened in history. It's amazing. It's human responses to crisis, like you know yeah. COVID or something like that. Like yo, people wouldn't do that. Like no, no. And he just put a zombie in there as the protagonist, but yeah. Uh, but she wrote this play using veteran stories, and one of them, humbly, is is my story uh, about my identity as a soldier and my experiences in combat. Uh, it, so it's really humbling to do it. But Well, I'll be taking a lot of Kleenex into the theater, John. I'm a big softy. I'm sure I'll be tearing up a little bit. Yeah, I get I get goosebumps just watching the sizzle reel to War Words. Having, uh, I saw a virtual reading of it during COVID because of COVID, but I've never seen it in person. Ah, no kidding. And they said I had to wear, basically, I couldn't let the cast know I was there or it might mess up their performance. I'm like, I'm not, I'm just, you know, I'm not that. So have that, you been, have you been yet or you, you haven't been? First oh, no person seen it. 
uh, and I really hope it, it, it grows, you know, how play has to grow and, um, make it through all the transitions. Well, yeah. And for, for all of our, uh, our audience, I will probably have seen it by the time this actually comes out. So I'll report on it afterwards, but not only is it, uh, gotten amazing reviews, but also it's very cheap for a New York play. It's uh, I got, I'm in the front row, John, I'll get spit on, you know, by the actors accidentally and uh, 45 bucks. Yeah. Which is like a fifth of most Broadway tickets. Yeah. And I, I was actually that front row too, like a row and, and they're like, Oh no, you can't be there. They'll see you. I'm like, I'm not that, you know, but if, if somebody was researching a role, right? Like the guy who's playing me clearly would recognize me. Yeah. Yeah. But back to the case studies, yeah. I think it's important. So I, one of the reasons as a, you know, an amateur his, you know, a, a historian or somebody, I was, as I studied over a decade of urban battles, urban warfare history, from Carthage to, you know, to today, people use stories about battles without actually knowing what happened there. Like literally, they're just told through oral histories or whatever that yeah. this is what happened. So I thought it was important because I did the same thing. I thought this or that happened because I'd heard it in a story. So I've gone back now on the case studies from Stalingrad up till, you know, uh, Moari 2017 saying, look, here's what happened. These were the size of both sides. Here's the number of deaths. So to help inform people when they use them as kind of these in their storytelling of presenting ideals. And would you say that um stories affect people not only when they decide to go into the military but also while you're fighting i mean did you did you have occasions i don't want to get too personal but did you have occasions when you were actually in a combat situation and you thought to yourself boy this happened in saving private ryan or anything like that 100 percent. if you read my first book connected soldiers it is almost like not self-actualization, but you're achieving something you had in, in your mind, or you hit you hit a cognitive dissonance where you thought there was because of the movies and the books, you thought there was a romance to it, and you, like the 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 sucky part isn't in the movie. Yeah, it's there, right? Like in in Band of Brothers, which is one of the greatest series ever produced. Yes, it is. Um, but the story of the Greatest Generation, right? For an American, that's very tangible, as you relate your experience to that framework. So when I jumped into combat in 2003, like, well, I'm jumping into combat like these stories of, of yeah. all the greatest generation and D-Day and all these things. So absolutely, that's a huge part of serving in the military. For every generation that goes in, they want to relate it to something. But where whereas a big problem, Brian, is when somebody joins the military and it's nothing like they thought, Yeah, uh, which happened, you know, unfortunately, like with counterinsurgency, where I had to talk to my soldiers. I'm like, like, you're not here to to kill you're not here to uh fight in these big gun battles that you've seen on tv like we're here to achieve stability so that this can can continue and we can you know achieve our national interests yeah so i've mentioned this before uh, in various contexts but one of my clients and actually my co-host alex dean also works with them is palantir technologies and they're as you know very very deeply deployed in ukraine the War crimes prosecutor there recently said in Time Magazine that they're the engine along with Microsoft. And I only mention it because our experience was they started the company in 2004. And part of the reason was post 9-11 attacks, many, many, many young people were going into the Central Intelligence Agency, into the FBI, into special operations 
uh, on the analytical side and thought they were going to have the same tools that Jack Ryan has in the books or that uh, Kiefer Sutherland has in 24. And they get in there, I'm slightly exaggerating, but you know, basically they're like Wang computers with a box this big and a little green screen this big. And so part of what the company did is just built a lot of really cool interfaces so humans could interact with it in the way they thought the government was already doing. Yeah, it's it's if you really, and I've seen actually, there's a paper about a, a CA guy who was trying to use storytelling to maintain institutional knowledge through storytelling. Yeah. So tangible to the human experience that I think we actually go off course when we when we we try to get away from it. Like, like military mm-hmm. doctrine, which I is the bane of my existence because it reads like stereo instructions. When yeah. humans don't learn that way, right? So yeah. storytelling is oral, but it's also in the way that even written information is prepared. You have to tell a story so it will stick in the mind and it, it can be part of self-identity, like you said, like what you think about something. But I think we get away from the storytelling to our detriment. Well, I'm going to give you a heads up, John. We're going to let you go soon, but I'm going to ask you to recommend a couple of books and or movies that you think most accurately depict warfare. So that's just a heads up. Now I'm going to talk a little bit and say that... Um, not that this is Brian's book club, but I want to talk a little bit about some of the stories uh, that influenced me in terms of what the current what's happening with the current conflict. And the first one is uh, this one right here, War and Remembrance by Herman Woke. Uh, I don't know if you have you ever read this book, John. So it's obviously a massive novel. It's 800 pages about the Holocaust and about World War II. And it's written as a novel, but it's meticulously researched and footnoted. And I read this book when I was about nine years old. And it talks- a 900 page book at nine years. Well, I probably read it between age nine and 11 or something like that. But I just like found it in my parents' basement and it very graphically and unflinchingly depicts the Holocaust and Auschwitz and one of the characters and everything that happens there. And I read this book as a kid and I didn't believe it was a real thing. I thought, oh, the human beings couldn't possibly do that. This is too horrible. So anyway, War and Remembrance, I recommend for World War II. For Israel, uh, Hamas specifically, I recommend another novel by Herman Woke, same guy, called The Hope, which is a really uh, interesting, uh, at least for the first 100 pages, uh, uh, fictional but very well-researched recreation of Israel in its founding days. And then finally, James A. Michener's The Source, which is much more of a 2,500-year history of Israel and the Middle East, but told in a narrative format. And I specifically mentioned Michener, John, because James Michener taught at the Iowa Writers Workshop, of which I am a graduate. And uh, I, I do a lot of writing myself, fiction and otherwise, and and I'm always I'm always thinking about James Michener because James Michener would research his books for like ten years, which is great. But then he would tell you every single word of his ten years of research he did in the book. So I lean a little bit more towards brevity, but that's just me. What what if if our if our listeners and viewers were going to read one book about urban warfare besides yours, which we're going to put in the, uh, in the show notes, what would it be? About urban warfare in general. Or just about warfare either way, because we're going to make him read your book about urban warfare. Yeah. I mean, I think Sebastian Younger's book war is an amazing verse. Uh, no true glory by being West. Who's a, I'm a great fan of his work about the battles of Fallujah. Um, 
you know, it's, it's almost like you asking me to pick my best kid. Yeah. Uh, Way 1968, which is a, actually a, a recent book to come out about the, the Battle of Way during the Vietnam War. Very, very good, very detailed, um, but also includes those human stories, which make the story come alive in your mind. Uh, and I actually highly recommend World War Z. Um, and the reason that I made the connection with that author is because there's a there's a scene in it called the Battle of Yonkers in it, which amazingly is so close to the actual experience of combat for the soldier versus the complexity of it. And of course, you know, Stephen, anything Stephen Ambrose writes yes. is worth the read. Who wrote Band of Brothers, as well as many, many other things. Well, I'm definitely going to go read World War Z, and I will uh, rewatch Band of Brothers, which is not only, according to the experts, uh, quite accurate, but it's immensely entertaining. Yes. And you'll see a lot of people in this movie who are big stars now, who are kind of just coming, and it's not a movie, it's a TV series, but who are just coming up in those days. So, John, uh, I know you probably have to run off and do CNN or cheat on me with one of your other lawyer friends. So I'm just going to ask you one more question. Okay. Favorite Christmas movie? Uh, the Christmas Story. Come on, man. Christmas Story? Yeah. You're yeah. Gonna shoot your eye out. You're going to shoot your eye out. And when the guy gets his tongue stuck on the uh, stuck on the the outside the pole, the freezing pole? It's a classic. Okay. I gotta, now I got to ask you one more question. Do you believe Die Hard is a Christmas movie? I do, of course. Uh, yeah. Especially Die Hard 1. I mean, uh, the rest right. are kind of down, downhill, but yeah, of course. Yeah, and then last question, which I've now said three times, but this is a huge fight that I have with my co-host. So because he's not here, I want to get you on the record. Who is the best James Bond, John? Sean, Penn, or Sean Connery, come on. Of course. Yeah. My co-host, Alex Dean, who is otherwise a great scholar of, of, of humanity, believes okay let me ask you this who's the worst bond because i bet you that'll be the person that he thinks is the best uh i can't i don't even know the guy's name because it's so bad uh, I, uh well well he thinks roger moore is the best bond. i don't even know who that is so no yeah exactly he's the guy he's the one from live and let die okay so john uh tell us uh we'll put in the show notes your books your institute uh tell us where we can uh, find you you have a podcast talk about your podcast real quick i just listened to an episode Yes, yeah, so yes, my podcast is called the Urban Warfare Project. Uh, I have over seventy episodes. I've been doing it for years now, unfortunately, wow. which is which is just research. You can find it on iTunes or Stitcher or anywhere you get your stuff. Uh, you can also go to my website, John Spencer Online, just where I try to put all my scholarship books, uh, articles, podcasts, all of it. And then, you know, as you uh, unfortunately, the Twitter spaces are almost an addiction at this point. But I'm at at Spencer Guard on on X now. Yeah, if you follow John and or me on X, and I know a lot of people who are watching this came over from X, so uh, hopefully you enjoy the light, more lighthearted side of things as well. Um, if you see John and me in any space together, it's pretty likely, not to, not to blow our own horns, but it's pretty likely it's a quality space because we've been in a bunch of them. We know what to avoid. We know what to go into. Not always. There's a few that yeah. we get sucked into that are not that not don't turn out to be great. But if you follow us, you'll probably be led down uh, down the correct path. So, John, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. We hope you'll come back and tell more stories from Ukraine. Talk about Israel. We'll talk about the laws of war. Maybe if you stop cheating on me with this other guy and uh, come back anytime. You're always welcome, my friend. All right. Thanks, Brian. Happy holidays to all, you and all your listeners. Thank you. Cheers, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. 
Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Core, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers. Cheers.